0: I think just about everyone who's ever heard of Jesus probably has their own ideas about him, right? And I imagine some of those people maybe don't think about him much at all, while others obviously think about him a lot. But one thing is for certain, as you've seen, there's no shortage of opinions or perspectives in this world when it comes to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you consider just the major religions throughout the world and how they differ on the subject of Jesus, the many different doctrines about him and how his... Uh, teachings have affected so many lives over the centuries, I believe it's safe to say that he's the most controversial figure in human history, uh, hands down, which is really very odd if the claims that he made about himself were not true, because there are countless people over the centuries who have claimed to be God, and they've faded into history and are largely forgotten. There are famous people throughout history who have done <clears throat> significantly notable things that they're credited with, but none of them have had even close to the worldwide impact that Jesus has had for a span of 2,000 years. And yet Jesus' only credentials were himself. He didn't write a book while he was on the earth. He didn't command an army. He never held a political office or owned vast amounts of land. Most of his travels were within a 100 miles of his own village. He never achieved or even tried to achieve any of the accomplishments that make most people famous. And yet he's become the most famous and most debated person in history. There are thousands of books written about him. Thousands of songs recorded about him. He's always been and still is the focus of much controversy in the media, in education, in government, and in pop culture, which is all the more amazing if you think about it because he never achieved any of the milestones that other famous people have had to achieve in order to become famous. And yet here he is, the most famous and most hotly debated human being who has ever lived without any of those credentials that other famous people have, and yet there are all of these different perspectives all over the world and all over our community, for that matter, about him, right? You don't have to go far to get a lot of different ideas about Jesus from people that you talk to, if uh, if you're willing to ask. I was having dinner just this week with the with a man, and it was fascinating. He was telling me about his faith or what he believed about Christ and Christianity and God. And he had all of these ideas that I'd never heard of before. He was talking about how he believes that God channels himself through saints and other people. And then he speaks to us and all of these really strange spiritual ideas, things I'd never heard of. And um, so in talking to him, trying to find out where does that come from? what what is What is your basis for believing that? I'm genuinely interested in where that comes from. And he uh, he said, well, it's just based on how I feel about God and Christianity. It's just, it was just sort of his personal doctrine based on his, on his own ideas. Just as we saw in the video, uh, the perspectives on Jesus vary significantly. In fact, even within the Christian church, it, and even within the Protestant evangelical church in America, we can get really specific here, even within our own ranks in the American church, there are many different perspectives About Jesus Christ, which is why it is paramount that we always consider the source of our information about and our understanding of Jesus Christ with honesty and humility, because there are endless popular notions about him floating around. And as we'll see today in our text, in fact, there always have been. And so it is of supreme importance when we reflect on the person of Jesus Christ that we're reflecting on the Jesus Christ of the Bible and not some version of him that has been manipulated by popular culture and then co-opted by individuals in order to serve their own selfish desires and yet I would suggest to you this morning that that is exactly what has happened in fact both inside and outside of some elements of the church uh, today and in our culture from the earliest moments of the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry on earth. That has been happening. And so as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to John, we're going to see this very scenario playing out among the public as they encounter him, and among the the religious leaders as they debate about him, and even among his own family as they try to define him. So let's turn to chapter 7 of John. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week and we'll work our way through the first 24 verses of this chapter in a message entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And as we read this story together, we're going to discover many different people trying to define Jesus in many different ways. Okay, we'll start with the first two verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So just to set the scene here, the Feast of Booths, which is also called Tabernacles, was a wonderful week-long celebration in September or October where families would actually camp out in temporary shelters to remember and recall God's faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness on the way from Egypt to Canaan as they were being led by uh, Moses. And so the Hebrews called it the festival uh, or Feast of Booths because... They would actually construct these makeshift shelters out of branches and leaves, according to God's instructions to them in Leviticus 23, 40 through 43. And that's, that's what they would live in during this feast. In fact, even the town dwellers would build these booths in their courtyards or on their flat rooftops to stay in during the festival. And so this festival was about to begin. And Josephus, uh, the first century historian, tells us that this was the most popular of the three principal feasts that brought faithful Jews flocking to Jerusalem every year in mass. And yet, as the chapter opens and the feast is about to begin, we find that Jesus hasn't made his way to Jerusalem yet for the feast because the religious Jews wanted to kill him. And so Jesus is still in Galilee. Uh, which has nothing to do, by the way, with a lack of courage. Uh, it was an awareness of the Father's perfect timing, as we'll see. And so as we continue in the story, we find Jesus' family also preparing to travel to the feast. And just before they do, uh, they have a very interesting conversation with their brother. Let's read it, verses 3 through 5. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus' own brothers, these men who have grown up with him, in the same house, maybe in the same room, these are people who should know Jesus probably better than anyone, and yet John tells us that even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's a really interesting observation because... They're trying to get Jesus to come with them to Jerusalem so that he can show off his stuff. They want him to, to prove himself on the big stage. You see, for the Hebrews, Jerusalem was the center of all worship as far as they were concerned. This was the place where everything truly significant relating to God and the coming Messiah would happen. And Jesus' brothers have seen him work miracles already. So they know what he's capable of and so they want him to go to Jerusalem during the week when all of the Jews are going to be there on the biggest stage of all and show them what he can do. But at the same time, John says that his brothers didn't believe in him. And furthermore, Jesus knew all men's hearts. We've already seen that in our study. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, John says that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We read in chapter four that he knew the life story of the woman at the well before she ever uh, even told him her story. In chapter six, when Jesus talks about being the bread of life, the disciples are having a hard time accepting this teaching. And verse 61 says, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, and then John goes on to record Jesus's response to his disciples. The point is, Jesus knew what was in people. He knew what was in their hearts. And he knew that even his brothers didn't believe in him. And so just as a side note, I think it's worth mentioning that we should never think that Jesus doesn't understand our low points in life, your loneliness and your heartache, All right, this passage we just read is on the heels of chapter 6, verse 66, that says, after this, after his bread of life discourse, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because of his teaching. So he's just been abandoned by many of his followers, and now his own brothers don't even believe in him. Later, when he's arrested, about to be crucified, his closest friends all desert him. Okay, Jesus knew loneliness and experienced tremendous grief. He wept over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Uh, Later in this book, in chapter 11, he weeps with his friends because he identifies with their sorrow over the death of Lazarus. And that was just before he raised him from the dead. Jesus knows our grief. He feels every pain. He wants us to be close to him. He doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to know him, which was precisely the problem here with his brothers. They knew what he could do, but they didn't truly know him, which is why they didn't believe in him. Truth is, I can't imagine the loneliness of wanting to be known. We all long to be known and then to be rejected by everyone, including your closest friends and even your own family. But listen to me, Jesus knows, he knows, and he wants you to know him deeply, both in your joy and in your sorrow. But unfortunately, there are many who are far more interested in being associated with Jesus for what he can do rather than for who he is. And his own brothers are a great example of that. They were enamored uh, with the Jesus of popular culture. They said to him, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, they they naturally assume that Jesus is seeking fame. Why? Because that's what's in their own hearts. And they say, hey, Jesus, let's go up to the big city and show everybody what you can do. Instead of recognizing him for who he is and wanting to be close to him so they could know him truly and deeply, they wanted to be close to him because he could do cool stuff and I think we have to be careful when we promote Jesus in and through the church today that we're actually telling people about him about about who he is rather than trying to sell them on what he can do okay certainly there are innumerable benefits and blessings to be had When you follow Jesus Christ in relationship with him, without a doubt, and there's nothing wrong with telling people about that. In fact, we should tell people about that. The point is, if we're merely trying to boost his popularity by marketing signs and wonders, by pushing prosperity, by making Christianity all about us and what we can get instead of all about him and knowing him then we're selling a pop culture Jesus, and that's a hollow representation of the true Messiah, the Christ who came and lived and died among us, who rose again to atone for the sins of the entire world. Why? Why did he do that? So that we could know him personally. That's the message The benefits will come as we walk with Him and live with Him and experience Him daily just as they did for His disciples in the Gospels. But the key is seeking to know Him, not just to know about Him or to see what we can get from Him. But this popular culture version of Jesus is just as prevalent today unfortunately as it was then and there are people who try to profit from that and in the process they never actually come to know him Uh, the very famous and very successful televangelist if you're my age or older you probably remember Jim Baker he wrote a book entitled I was wrong after he was convicted of fraud and conspiracy in 1989 he spent uh, eight years in federal prison and he admitted that uh before he went to prison, that he had never read through the Bible. This was a a very famous televangelist. And from the standpoint of of building a successful organization, he was very successful. And so this is an excerpt from his book. And this is what he says in regards to the message that he'd been preaching for many years. He said, the more I studied the Bible, however, I had to admit that the prosperity message did not line up with the tenor of Scripture. Scripture. My heart was crushed to think that I led so many people astray. I was appalled that I could have been so wrong, and I was deeply grateful that God had not struck me dead as a false prophet. About the time of my parole hearing, I completed my study of all the words of Jesus in the New Testament. To my surprise, after months of studying Jesus, I concluded that he did not have one good thing to say about money. Most of Jesus' statements about riches, wealth, and material gain were in a negative context. Even the prodigal son, one of my favorite stories told by Jesus, took on a new meaning as I read it again for the first time with an overview of Scripture in mind. I quickly noticed that the story began with the younger brother saying to the father, Give me, give me my part of the inheritance, Luke 15, 12. He didn't even say, please give me. He simply demanded, before long that young man landed in the pig pen, I began to see that the fastest way to the pig pen begins with, give me. And the fastest route to the big pen, the federal penitentiary, often begins with the same phrase, give me. Okay, we must learn to seek him for who he is, not what he can give us. The the benefits will come. The more we walk with him and the better that we know him. But his brothers didn't get that yet. They did later. And as we'll see as we continue in our story, Neither did a lot of people who heard about him. Okay, let's keep reading. And we'll see many other versions of this pop culture Jesus show up in the story. Verses 6 through 13. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not uh, going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay, so at this point in history all Jews were required to go up to Jerusalem for this festival. And of course, Jesus knew that. He knew that the law required it. And he never had any intention of breaking the law. Okay, the word that that Jesus uses for time here when he says, my time is not yet come in verse six is uh, kairos or kairos, which characteristically means an opportunity, which is to say the best time to do something, The, the moment when circumstances are the most suitable or most advantageous. So Jesus never planned to defy the law. He was simply waiting for the Father to present the right opportunity for him to go. However, what he was more than willing to defy was the popular notions about him within the culture of his day. So he tells his brothers that he's not going. And there's been a, a lot of controversy over this passage, over the centuries, because obviously Jesus does go up to Jerusalem for the festival later after his brothers. In fact, uh, there is in later Jewish literature passages that describe Jesus as a great deceiver in part because of this passage. But in addition to his use of the word kairos to explain that he's, he's waiting on God's timing, the Greek present tense in verse 8 can legitimately have the sense, I am not now going, meaning I'm not going to go with you now in the way that you want me to. It's not an emphatic, I'm not going ever. In fact, many of the oldest um, and best manuscripts that we have available to us have the Greek word upo in this passage, which means not yet, rather than the Greek uk, which simply means not. And so the point is Jesus wasn't fibbing here. He wasn't lying to his brothers. He was simply refusing to conform to their version of who they thought that he was and who they wanted him to be. And so much like the wedding celebration in Cana, if you'll remember, where Jesus had to politely rebuke his own mother when he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, John 2, 4, after she suggested that he do something about the lack of wine at the feast. And yet he went ahead and turned the water into wine anyway. Same type of situation. He's not saying, I'm not going to be Jesus in these instances. He's saying, I'm not going to be the Jesus that you think I am because I'm much more than that. And again, once he gets to Jerusalem, we find the public making all sorts of claims about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. It's no different today. There are a lot of people who want to paint their own version of Jesus as just a good man a good moral teacher, but nothing more. And yet, as mentioned earlier, if that's true, if that's all that he was, his teachings and lifestyle would have never been able to transform millions of people's lives for over 20 centuries. Okay, good teachings from dead men inform people. They don't transform people. Only a savior. Only one true God who is alive and well can do that okay, and there, there are not only people today who claim that Jesus was just a good man but there are also a lot of people who fully will admit the overwhelming historical and archaeological evidence that Jesus ac- actually existed through the confirmation of what we have in scripture but, but they still believe that he was just a religious nut a deceiver And I find that interesting because if he couldn't deceive his closest friends into following him at his crucifixion, they all abandoned him just before his death because they were afraid of being persecuted. If he was merely a deceiver, then he wasn't a very good one because he wasn't even able to deceive his own followers into believing that he would rise again at the time of his crucifixion. So why in the world would they ever have gone on to do what they did after his resurrection if those were just made-up stories? Why would they be deceived after his death if they weren't deceived before his death? It doesn't make any sense at all because those same men, those exact same men who ran for cover, who denied him for fear of being persecuted, turned around and gave up their lives for him after his resurrection in the face of the very worst persecution. What changed in them that they would all run headlong into that fate? There is no explanation other than the fact that he was not just a good man, or a crazy man, or a deceiver. In fact, the only reasonable explanation is that he was who he said he was the Messiah the one true God, and he knew all men's hearts. And so again, when Jesus uh, confronted people's popular notions about him, he wasn't saying, I'm not going to be Jesus for you. He was saying, I'm not going uh, to be the Jesus that you think I am, because I'm much more than that. Let's finish our story for today, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews were marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus had the best comebacks in the whole world, didn't he? (laughs) So Jesus, being well aware of the many different versions of him that were being put out there in the culture, in and around Jerusalem, says, look, guys, you think you know who I am, but you have no idea. First of all, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So they're criticizing his teaching in the temple. And he says, but it's not my teaching. It's the teaching of the God that you claim to serve. And if you knew him, you would know that what I'm telling you is true. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And then he confronts their hypocrisy. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, You claim to know the scriptures, but you don't obey them. And furthermore, if you really understood them, then you'd understand that I am the one they're talking about. But obviously you don't because you're trying to kill me. So stop making judgments about me based on these popular notions in this culture about who I am. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." They're supposed to know who he is based on the scriptures that they claim are the words of God that guide their own lives. And yet they'd rather have the Jesus that they had concocted in their own minds rather than the real Jesus who was standing right there in front of them. And to be honest, I wonder sometimes today if Jesus walked into some of our churches, some of our gatherings, some of our religious events, would we recognize and embrace him or would we run him right out the back doors? He was trying to introduce himself to these religious Jews, not as the Jesus of pop culture, but as Jesus of the Bible, the Messiah in their own scriptures, but they were not interested in the Jesus of the Bible. Why is that? It's because the Jesus of pop culture is not a threat to anyone. As long as we can create a version of him that works for us, then what's not to love? The Jesus of the Bible, on the other hand, is a great threat to all who would seek to try and control him or define him rather than to just know him for who he really is. And this is the great dilemma of our day. You know, it's not hard to find people who say that they believe in Jesus in our culture. In fact, I'm certain that if someone had asked Jesus's brothers just before they went up to Jerusalem, if they had believed in him, I think they would have said, of course we do. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Even though John tells us that at that point they didn't believe in him the truth is what they believed in was their own version of him they were all about getting jesus out in front of the crowds to show off what he could do so that he could rise to fame and them of course with him they believed in a version of him and yet they didn't even know their own brother this is the dilemma of our day there are so many versions of jesus floating around in our culture today The Jesus that promises prosperity. The Jesus that says you can come as you are and stay as you are. The Jesus that requires nothing from us. The Jesus that is okay with being one of many idols in our lives. The Jesus that doesn't really expect us to live according to his word because it's all about grace anyway to the exclusion of any semblance of even a shred of holiness the Jesus that is low on expectations and easy on our conscience. That's, that's pop culture Jesus. And we like him because he's not a threat to us. The problem is that is not the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life He cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. That is meant to be the ultimate giving up of ourselves. The biblical Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his own cross, that is the image of crucifying our flesh, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27. The biblical Jesus said, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Luke 14:33. You see the biblical Jesus is a threat. He is a threat to our comfort and our understanding of security and safety and our planning and our big fat American dream. If you follow that Jesus, he's liable to obliterate your plans and replace them with something much riskier much less comfortable and far bigger than anything you could ever imagine with your own version of him. We limit ourselves so much by our understanding of who Jesus is when we follow a pop culture Jesus. And again, when he confronted people's popular notions about him, he wasn't saying, I'm not going to be Jesus for you. He was saying, I'm not going to be the Jesus that you think I am because I'm much more than that. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Right judgment means understanding the person and nature of Christ according to who he is in the Holy Scriptures. Well, how did he describe himself in the Bible? He says, I am the bread of life, John six thirty five. We must feed on him to experience true life. In other words, we must know him fully for who he truly is. He said, I am the breath of life, Genesis 2, 7. We don't, we don't just need him for more provision. We need him for our very existence, for every breath that we take. He said, I am the light of the world, John eight twelve. Without him, we would forever remain in darkness. He said, I am the door of the sheep, John ten seven. He's the only way to salvation. I am the good shepherd, John ten eleven. He's the only one who gave himself up for us. I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. 25. He's the one who gives us eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. I am the true vine. John 15, 1. He's the source of all good things. He said, it is I, ego e me. Do not be afraid. In John six twenty, He was telling them that, look, I am all of these things. I am God. And I'm with you, how incredibly disheartening it must have been to be all of these things and to offer yourself utterly and completely to these lost people. And yet the only thing that they were interested in was their own popular versions of who he was. Their desire for him was shallow and hollow, and because of it, they didn't know him. And this is the dilemma of our day. So many people, even religious people, think that they believe in Jesus But what they really believe in is a version of him that is an amalgamation, a a blending of whatever is trending in culture about him at any given time, along with the parts of the Bible about him which are appealing to their own sensibilities and desires. And then everything else just gets chucked out the window because we don't want him to disrupt our otherwise quiet and comfortable lives that we've created for ourselves. He just fits right in there wherever we stick him. R.C. Sproul once asked the question... Do you love the biblical Christ? The qualifier is necessary because people are prone to declare their belief in a Jesus who has nothing to do with the man depicted in the biblical record. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to stop expecting things of him. I'm talking to myself, okay? We have to stop expecting things of him that are not part of his agenda, Whatever ideas that we have about him, if, they're, if they don't correspond to the biblical truth about who he actually is and what he actually came to do, then we must be willing to lay that down and instead search out the true Messiah, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of pop culture. This is the dilemma of our day. And it haunts me in my sleep because I fear that false security in a pop culture Jesus is dragging people into hell. The indisputable truth is there is only one Jesus and that is the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Jesus that John knew so well and he loved so much that he desperately wanted others to encounter that same Jesus and so he wrote these words we're proclaiming that to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. You see, John knew firsthand who his best friend really was. It took him some time to get there. But when he did, he completely gave up his former life to follow this Jesus. And John wanted everyone else to know his best friend too, because he'd experienced him. He was made manifest in John's own life, firsthand, in the flesh, and he knew that the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, was infinitely better than any other version that our culture could ever come up with. And so just as this biblical Jesus called his disciples to follow him, not merely someone else's version of him, In the very same way, he's calling each one of us today to follow him, the real biblical Jesus, that we may truly know him. Let's pray.